Hi, I'm Jennifer, a certified life coach that specializes in helping women reconnect with themselves after betrayal. I'm a mom of four awesome kids, a podcaster, world traveler, Netflix watcher, yoga doer, fashion connoisseur, and an Instagrammer. I want to help marriages avoid the pitfalls and heartache I have experienced in being married for 26 years. So if you want to create an amazing life for yourself, I can show you how. Hey friends, I'm so excited to be here today. I have a special guest. His name is Smith Alley, and I have never technically officially met him, but I've met his mom, and I love his mom. She is amazing, and of course, she has amazing kids, and one of them is named Smith, and Smith has this amazing Instagram account and foundation, and it's called live.life.bigger, and I'm going to let Smith introduce and tell us what he does and who he is. Yeah, I always, I think the introduction thing is is kind of funny for me. So I'm a public speaker. I get to travel and talk to youth and parents about the harmful effects of social media and pornography, um, a lot about mental health, and I'll, I'll get into why later, but I'll speak at conferences or places where there's these people with like letters before or after their name, <laughs> doctor something, something, LCSW, and so to kind of poke fun at the fact that I'm just a high school student, I always say that, hey, you know, I'm Smith Alley, here are my qualifications, and I have this qualification slide, and it says, uh, 18 full years of life, I have jumped out of an airplane, and I got a 58.625% on my math final last semester. Awesome. And so <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of who I am. I'm a senior at Bountiful High School. I'm 18 years old. I have an amazing mother. Her name's even more ridiculous than mine. So I'm Smith <laughs> Alley, but she's Sally Alley. Um, I just love saying Sally Alley. Like it just, you can tell she's already a friend to start off with, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And it you can't just say Sally. Like it's always, it's just one name now. It's Sally Alley. That's totally true. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I have this uh, a foundation called the Live Life Bigger Foundation and a company called Protect Strong. I always say that my story starts... And it's about paper cuts because some of us have had broken bones. Some of us have had stitches, but we've all had that paper cut. And mine was the first day of first grade. And I remember walking into first grade and sitting down at the yellow table with my friend Jackson and this girl named Ellie. And we started talking and then Miss Rooney comes into the room and she, she gets class started. She's like, Hey friends, we're going to stand up one by one and introduce ourselves to our new class. So kids start to stand up and they introduce themselves and sit down and it comes to be my turn and I get up and I get really nervous and my, my legs start to shake a little bit and I had a stutter when I was a kid. My mom will say it's cute, but I, I beg to differ. And so I go, uh, I'm, um, my name's Smith. And I'm like, dang it, dang it. You know, this, this was my one chance to impress all of these people to make new friends. There had been this girl in kindergarten who, who had kissed me on the cheek. And so I thought like that was over. And I'm just embarrassed. I'm flustered. I'm angry. And I sit down. And I remember so vividly this girl from the red table. She turns around and she looks me straight in my eyes and she says, why can't you talk right? And that was the day that I realized I was different from everyone. And that was the day that I bought into the core belief that I wasn't enough and that I was never going to, to be enough to make my parents proud or to have friends who truly cared about me or to have like love that I deserved. But 
I was raised, like, I was always just such a naturally smiley and happy kid. Yeah, and I'm just going to stop you right there. And I think as parents, it would be of great value to talk to our kids about this concept of paper cuts. And unfortunately, your paper cuts, as you get older, just get bigger and deeper and um, more intense. Totally. But if you can recognize those, I mean, I just think it's such a beautiful lesson to teach and to talk to our kids about because if they can recognize those wounds, those things that hurt them, it helps them add feeling to it, add context, add like have an adult say, Smith, you know, that's okay. And kind of hear you and feel you of how you're feeling. So continue on. And I love how you're going to go with how you always are that happy kid, because sometimes we think the kids that are struggling the worst probably are like sad, angry, all the emotions. They don't have the smile on their face. Yeah. But I think that's definitely a misconception. So continue with your story. Totally. And I think that especially with the paper cuts is we aren't taught like in school. I remember in third grade learning how to write a check. I, <laughs> You're never going to yeah. use a check, I promise. <laughs> and, but, but we didn't learn yeah. how to deal with like emotional pain or, or emotional hurt. And so I think the other thing is paper cuts that aren't taken care of at a young age just continue to grow deeper and deeper. Yes, they fester. It's like having a splinter in your finger that you don't ever heal. Mm-hmm. And eventually, like you might get some sort of like infection throughout your whole body. Yeah. So I, I'm with you 100%. Like we need to teach our children feelings, emotions, how to deal with that because I'm 51 years old and I'm just now learning how detrimental the effects of this emotional pain, not dealing with your feelings throughout your entire life. It just comes out sideways. Yeah, totally. So I, um, yeah, I, I was this smiley kid. My parents will tell stories about how they would walk in to a room and I would be sitting there just staring at a wall all by myself no toys, nothing. And I'd just be laughing at this wall. Like I was always that, that just smiley, super just laughing all the time. And that's how my whole family knew me. So I couldn't, I couldn't show them that I was hurt. I couldn't show them that, that I was going through something. Yeah. Cause or, that's like a weakness or yeah. like, how do I say this? I'm, I'm nine or eight or however old you were. Like, how can I, I don't know how to even express how I'm feeling. Yeah. And at, at such a young age, I had learned this this concept of pride mm-hmm. and of like being broken is weakness mm-hmm. and weakness isn't accepted or weakness isn't wanted and so i put up a, this facade that i was okay when inside i wasn't i was hurting and life just went on like that so then when i was 9 i was exposed to pornography uh, online pornography and it was an innocent exposure i was online and i clicked on a link that wasn't what it appeared to be. Which is so crazy that a nine-year-old, and I'm sure it happens even younger these days. Yeah, the, the average exposure now can be seen as low as seven. And so for me, I was just online. I was exposed to something, just super soft pornography. And my mom, she was super, they were very proactive about these things. We had had conversations about pornography and what to do when to see it. And so I remember her saying the words, turn it off and tell an adult. And so I, I'm thinking about those words and I, I turn this, this tablet off and I, I put it down and I think about that second part, tell an adult. And immediately my mind goes back to that little kid who didn't think that he was enough, who just wanted to make his parents proud. 
And I was afraid that even though it wasn't my fault, it was so innocent that they'd be disappointed in me or ashamed of me. Yeah, or you'd done, you'd, you felt like you did something wrong. Right. You're like, I've got to hide this and I can't tell anyone. Yeah, I, yeah, I thought it was me. And so I didn't tell them about the experience. And I kind of swept it under the rug. Life went on until about nine months to a year later when it crept back into my life as it, it was a drug. It was a small fix to everything that I was feeling and dealing with. And it, it was detrimental to me. At the same time, I got social media and I started to compare myself to everyone and everything that I was seeing online. I'd see my friends on vacation or hanging out with friends when I wasn't invited, and I hated that. I'd see these guys with just washboard abs posing on the beach, and that wasn't me, and that's still not me. <laughs> you know, I, I always say that I'm dad bod forever. <laughs> and so, hey, dad bod's a good thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> So I, I started to hate the situation that I was in and I, I started to hate my body because, again, even without anyone verbally telling me, I was taught that I had to fit this mold physically and emotionally and socially and I didn't feel like I was fitting it. And so with that just self-loathing, self-hatred cycle with, with addiction to pornography added on top of it, it got me into a really dark place. I would try to numb out because again, I was just trying the the base. Right, of you it. didn't want to feel the feelings, yeah. right? So I don't want to feel this uncomfortable. I'm not good enough, whatever. So I'm gonna look at porn because that makes me feel better. Right. And you know it's not right, but you're like, no, that gives me the little drug, the dopamine hit that I need. So I'm not. Yeah, it makes total sense. Yeah, and the, and the base of it again was just trying to to help that little first grade kid heal, right? Because I'd never dealt with that, and I'd never emotionally process that. And so this whole time, I'm just trying to numb myself so that I didn't have to deal with the feelings that were years and years old. And that cycle of just, you know, using pornography to feel good, because I didn't. And then after you use it, you feel even worse. And then you hate yourself for it. And it's like this cycle. Yeah. That seems, I'm going to get the hit. And then I'm going to feel terrible and be bad. But then I'm going to get the hit again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that just that continues, and it, it continued to to draw from me. And so in eighth grade, I remember sitting in my wood shop class, and I made a plan to take my life there. But I didn't want. I mean, you know, my parents. Yeah, they're they're just amazing <laughs> people, and I knew, even though I felt like they didn't care about me being alive, I knew that they were good people and that they had done a lot for me in my life. And so I didn't want them to have to find me uh, dead. And so they twice a year would go on a vacation in the city, you know, leave for two days mm -hmm. and go get a hotel over their anniversary or something like that. And I remember I made my plan for that weekend so that they wouldn't have to be the ones to find me. And they had planned a trip and it was the Wednesday before they were leaving out of town. I found an organization called Fight the New Drug, and they taught me that I wasn't a bad kid, but a good kid wrapped up and enslaved by bad content. And then the next day, on the Thursday, a man named Rob Eastman came into my eighth grade health class and talked to us about his story with addiction and suicide. And I realized that I wasn't alone in what I was dealing with, but most importantly, 
I paired that success. Like I paired, you know, I saw this cool guy who's a gym owner and a business owner. And who had Thank overcome. you, Rob Eastman. Yeah. <laughs> and I paired that with, with success. And so I, I realized like, not only am I, am I not alone, because I knew that there were kids struggling with porn. I knew that there were kids struggling with mental health. But I just thought they were the kids that like no one talked to, right? And the mm-hmm. kids who they're wore, the weirdos. They're yeah. the problem kids. They're yeah. the ones that they don't have good parents. Right. Or. And so I, I realized that I wasn't alone in who I am. Um, and those two things kind of made me realize that my life was worth living. Even though I still continued this cycle of, of addiction and I uh, found myself severely depressed and dealing with anxiety, uh, consuming pornography five to seven times a day. And I got to this point, April 23rd, 2018, I had my first and hopefully last encounter with the police. Um, so porn had led me down a road where I got accused of some things that, that I hadn't done. Um, and so I spent about a year and a half in a courtroom with my parents, had to pay for an attorney, do all of that stuff. Um, and had you told them at this time about your plan or about what about pornography? No, or, so in, in, the, in fact, it was just manifesting itself in yeah. other ways. And even when, so on April twenty third, two thousand eighteen, uh, the the police contacted my parents, and that that day everything kind of came out about what I was going through. But it wasn't until even six months after that that I even told them that I'd been su- actually suicidal. You know, I told them that I'd been depressed and dealing with anxiety, but. I, I'd never told them that like I was suicidal. I would made a plan, but I remember that night it was a, it was a blow up day for me. It was just full of emotions. I didn't know where my life was going to, to lead. I didn't know if I'd ever like be able to go, go to the college that I wanted to go to or do any of the things that I wanted to be. And I remember my mom came down to me that night and she grabbed my face and she said, Smith, I will fight for you, but you have to fight for yourself first. And with tears in my eyes, I looked up at her and I said, all right, mom, I'll fight. I'll fight. Let's do this. And so that's where it began. And how old were you then? I was 14, 14. the very end of eighth grade. That's when I I just decided that no matter what my past had been, that I was going to become the person that I wanted to be. Uh, I set my goals. I realized that I had kind of had this, this false definition of success and of happiness and that was often defined as like having a good job that makes a lot of money and a hot wife and a big, big house. Right. Like, and that's what we see on TV, right? That's mm-hmm. what we see on Instagram. That's what we think. Like all those people are so happy. Yeah. And I, I realized that that happiness to me meant having a good relationship with my family, finding a, a woman that I love and marrying her and having a family with her and being able to help others and make other people happy. And so I kind of changed my, my definition of success. And I think a great just life lesson is now that I'm chasing that, that definition, I'm finding even more worldly success as, as well, right? Yeah. Like I, I do totally. good and money comes mm-hmm. and I do good and people begin to follow me. It's like the law of abundance, right? Mm-hmm. And I love, I love abundance. But you have that mentality because you're like, the more I give the more that I get and it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think that like redefining my success and focusing on the things that I want first, I've received everything. And so I joined a recovery group at that point in my life. I got a therapist and I I started talking about my mental health 
and I took all these steps and I, I finally found happiness. Um, and I like loved myself again and I felt comfortable with myself. I had rebuilt those relationships that I'd lost with my family and my friends with my God and like I felt good again. And so I decided like, I don't want to keep that to myself. I knew that I, when I went to school that everyone I saw in the halls, they, they were all struggling. And so I felt the need to help those people. And so it, it started off small just, I met this kid at summer camp. Which is so brave of you, right? Like what teenager is willing to talk about their struggles? So I just, you and I had that in common, right? Yeah. I want to talk about my struggles because I don't want other women to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's so beautiful that you had something inside of you that says, I want to share this. And I think, I think someone has to start building the community, right? Yeah, because I, no one wants to talk about pornography. It's like parents are like, oh, I'm going to pretend I don't know what my kids are looking yeah. at. I'm going to be in denial to know what they're looking at. Yeah, and, and we, all, we, we all want to talk about it, right? We all want to have someone to sit there and cry with us sometimes. But oftentimes, no one is willing to be the first person to do it, right? because yeah, we're scared, right? Mm-hmm. And so I met this kid at summer camp, and I told him about what my story and what I'd gone through. And I remember him just starting to cry. He had tried to take his life two weeks before we met. Uh, He had been using drugs and pornography and just all kinds of things. He was in very deep and he felt alone. And so we spent like three hours that night making a, a map to his recovery. I helped him lock down his phone. We did stuff like that. And I just felt, you know, as, as I watched him take the same steps that I had taken, and like rebuild those those relationships and start to love himself again and accept himself. I loved watching him do that. And I I, I fell in love with that feeling of, of helping somebody. And it was so simple because, you know, I just had to look at my own story and say like, okay, that's the way I went. Mm-hmm. And he followed and he, he found happiness. So then it was with my lacrosse team. I played for Woods Cross Lacrosse my freshman year, and I just started talking about the, the recovery group that I went to. And soon enough, there were... So where is the recovery group? Like if someone wants their teenager, they personally want, like where would you look for a recovery group? Yeah, so I went to the Sons of Helaman program. Okay. Um, it's a church-based program, but I've met a lot of kids there who don't believe in God or who aren't specifically So you don't um, have to LDS. be a certain religion right. to go there. Yeah. Okay. Um, they base it a lot off of like the battle between heaven and hell. But I think that, I, again, I've met a lot of kids who aren't religious who have found success in the program. So you can find it at lifechangingservices.org. There's in-person and virtual meetings. That was that was a big help for me. Again, like I just started talking about it at lacrosse practice and kids started coming with me and the next thing I know, there's five or six kids from my team coming with me every it's single like week. It's like good peer pressure, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is so awesome. Like, I just think we need more kids like you, Smith. Thanks. Well, <laughs> and that's that's my hope, too. Yeah. That's my hope is that, you know, if, if we all just talked about what we were dealing with, we wouldn't need public speakers. We wouldn't even really need therapists if, if we were just open and vulnerable. Yeah, because we're so ashamed of it. And I love your friend at the camp that you met. I bet his parents, I don't know his parents, they might have labeled him as a bad kid, but he's a good kid. He just is doing bad things that are unhelpful. 
because he was caught up in this addiction. Yeah. And so he's a good kid. Like I think sometimes as parents, we label our kids like, oh, they're a bad kid or our kid's friends. But no, they're all good kids. They just are making bad choices. Totally. And I say this all the time, and I love that you brought it up, is I think that humans in general, especially kids, are are created for happiness. And so I hate that I'm the only boy in my family. I have three sisters, two older, one younger. And so when I was going through my hard time, my parents would go to their friends that had boys and be like, can you give us some advice? Like we've never yeah. done a, a boy before. We don't know what's happening. Why is he acting like this? And so many times they they just say, "Oh, it's just that teenage boy phase. Yeah. He'll come out. He'll come out of it in a couple." Yeah, of years. it's like yeah. Oh, that's just normal. No, it's not normal. It's, right? Yeah, there's, I, we need to pay attention to those flags. Yeah, we're. I think we're made for happiness, and what people say when they say they'll come out of it after a few years is what's really happening is that kid by himself falls on his butt multiple times. And finally, after a lot of struggle and a lot of grit and determination, finds self-confidence. But that doesn't but happen the, but naturally. Sometimes they don't, and they do end up taking their life. And that's where the tragedy is. Yeah, right? or, or continue to fall yeah. into pornography addiction or drug use or alcoholism or you know the multitudes of things that there are to numb pain. And so... I hate I, the one thing I say is like stop writing off behavior as a as a phase, because right it's those are like warning signs. Like mm-hmm. okay, I, your kids are doing this, or they're changing their friend group, or they're not hanging out with friends, or in their bedroom all the time. Those are warning signs, right? Yeah, and it, and it can be something as simple like that doesn't mean they're watching porn right. or doing drugs. It can be something as simple as like they're having drama at school with a friend or a boy or a girl they like. Like right. it doesn't have to be anything specific. So I think that's that's important and and super crucial. I remember after, uh, you know, after going through these these phases of of helping people, and this kind of goes back to what we we're talking about about finding that community. I was getting ready to get my license, and my parents said that if I wanted to get my license, I had to be an Eagle Scout first. Mm. So I was like, <laughs> I don't want to paint a bench or plant some yeah. trees. Like I'm not passionate about that. So I put on a fireside um, for for my community, uh, just a night where my therapist came and spoke about pornography and social media. Um, I shared my story. And that was kind of the first time that in front of a big audience, I, I shared my story. How did that feel doing that? I'm sure terrified. Very nervous. Yeah. yeah, very nervous, but also exciting and exhilarating. Now I look back on that video um, and I'm like, what an awful speaker, you know, like I've, I've been <laughs> You've able honed to have, your talent yeah. though. Cause how many do you, you speak everywhere, right? Yeah. Like, I usually speak 10 to 15 times a month. Um, everywhere. I just got back, uh, two weeks ago. I was in California. Do they find you on, do you have a website or how yeah, do they find you? I have a website. So either on Instagram or at my website, www.livelifebigger.org. Okay. Um, and again, like this one, fireside turned into then i started i started this company called protect strong where i would go into families and help them set up their tech safely and are you still doing that so i'm not i'm not doing it in person (laughs) anymore um we have these these parent workshops called the raising kids in combat where you can come join us on a weekend we serve dinner um and we show you like we teach you how to have uh open conversations with your kids I partner with an addiction counselor named Danny Deaton. He's found on Instagram at Your Living Proof. So I partner with him um, and he kind of does the conversation side and how to 
have those conversations, talk with your kids, and then I focus on how to set up your technology safely and host that discussion about pornography and stuff like that. And, and so I, I love that. With so what just give me one question. Like if parents are like nervous to talk to their teenagers, talk to their younger kids about pornography, like what's a good starter question that you feel like could be an open question that a, a teenager might be willing to talk about? Well, the first thing, I, I think at the youngest age when you're introducing it, I don't think you need to ask any questions. I think there's some resources that you can use to just help them understand what that is. On my website, there's a resource page and there's a book on there called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Junior. Mm. That's for your youngest kid. And then there's a Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, just the regular that's you know, g- growing up. But I think after that, for me, I always assume if I meet a young man, 93.8% of young men have seen online pornography before the age of 18. Mm-hmm. When I meet a young man, I assume that they've right. seen and are watching pornography. And if they say no, they're probably lying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, Me and my dad always joke, 95% of boys say they, they watch porn and the other 5% are lying about it. Yes. And yes. so I always assume that and I think parents yeah. should, should do the same. I think that like the question, what's going yeah. on is yeah. a great start off question. And when they say, oh, I'm fine, what, whatever, mom, just leave me yeah. alone. I think that's when you push more because mm-hmm. again, if you see that, if you see the unhappiness, you need to continue to insist that there's something going wrong because they should be able to, to have happiness. Right. And I think not because just not everyone that looks at porn gets addicted, right? Yeah. So you might see it occasionally, but you're not addicted to it. But an addiction is five, you were using it five to seven times a day. Yeah. Like you, you would use that more than do anything else. Yeah, right? totally. And like I have plenty of resources on how to open that conversation if if people mm-hmm. want to reach out to me online. Um, you totally all the moms listening to this and the dads totally want to reach out to you. Well, do it. <laughs> and yeah. we can donate, right? Because yeah. it's a nonprofit, so all of us need a tax deduction. Yeah. So we want to donate to you. Yeah. So <laughs> I and just like a few of the things that we're doing there, uh, I know we're getting short on time. Um, after you know, after creating a, a suicide plan of my own. It's always been something I'm passionate about, but just this last year, we um, I lost a close friend of mine, um, and so that inspired us. We're doing a, a Your Gold Suicide Prevention concert up in Ogden, Utah, June 11th. There's going to be 8,000 people there, mental health resources, a ton of stuff like that. And, and is it free? or, or The tickets they- are going to be very, they're going to be highly deducted. Uh-huh. Or on sale, it's going to be fifteen dollars okay. uh, for a ticket. Totally worth it. We have some awesome headliners that are coming. We can't announce them yet, but we should be able to next week. Okay. And so we're like fundraising money to put that on. I'm trying to start a support group for young men struggling with pornography who can't afford a regular group in the Layton area. And so I'm working on things like that. Uh, and then I speak again ten to fifteen times a month. To places all across the country. I've gone to Austin, Texas and California multiple times, Reno, Nevada. I'm going to Washington next month. Oh, that's I'm just so impressed by you, Smith. Like, thank, you. thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And please, everyone, go to his website, go to his Instagram, Live Life Bigger, and you won't be sad that you did. You're going to learn a lot for it to help your teenagers, help your younger kids. Help your husband, help yourself, whoever, because pornography, unfortunately, is here to stay. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
If you want more relationship tips, email me at jennifer at relationship411podcast.com so you can get on my email list. And also you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at relationship411podcast. I promise to give you the 411 about relationships so you don't have to call 911 for yours. Thank you.